well. Hopefully you get your Bibles with you. Take them out. We're in Acts, as you saw or heard there, 18. Um, you know, in the wintertime, it feels like every year around this time, I get a strong desire to rewatch for, I don't know how many times, the Lord of the Rings trilogy. I don't know if you find yourself. I think this is around the time of the year, December, when it was released, and my wife and I were joking that I've like fallen asleep to it at least like five times in the last like three months. Like I just like something about this time of year that I just, I have to find myself watching it. It's a, it's an awesome story. It's a fantastic movie. And um, you know, one of the things that's always sort of struck me from the first time that I saw it um, was the relationship between Samwise Gamgee and Frodo Baggins. Um, Really, actually, the, the, the friendship that they form, but also just Sam, his character in general. I've always been, I think I probably don't speak just for myself when I said I've always been sort of drawn to him as a character. So much to like about him, right? If you've seen the movie or read the story, um, he's a simple individual. He's gritty. He's full of bravery. And he is really a sort of genuine salt-of-the-earth character. But above all... One of the things that has been so attractive about him as a character is his remarkable loyalty to Frodo as just a real good friend, a true friend. I remember uh, watching the movie the first time and uh, just being struck by him, this character, Sam, and kind of thinking to myself, like, I want a friend like that. <laughs> Maybe I should be a friend like that. There's just so much to like about Samwise Gamgee. The movie, really, if you're familiar with it, really is just essentially the, the story of a journey. Frodo's on a mission to destroy a ring properly in Mount Doom, uh, located in Mordor. The fires of Mount Doom, it's where he's taking it. And the journey maybe sounds easy enough, but if you've watched it, you, it's not easy. You'd be wrong if you thought that. It's a difficult journey. All of the evil forces that Middle Earth has to offer have sort of been summoned to try and stop Frodo and his comrades from finishing this journey, from accomplishing their mission. Along the way, they are assaulted with one attack after another from one terrifying creature after another. It is a journey that is full of discouragement and challenge. It's a difficult journey. But right there, in the middle of the journey, in the middle of this great adventure, right there in the thick of it, is Samwise Gamgee. Really a gift to Frodo. And along the way, this individual serves for Frodo as a constant source of encouragement a constant source of encouragement, a real gift to Frodo is Samwise Gamgee. You know, the reality is, brothers and sisters, life for us is not unlike that journey. Life for us is a journey that is full of ups and downs, one challenge after another, one form of discouragement after another. And oftentimes, if you're just normal, you will find yourselves thinking, I don't know if I can keep going. You'll find yourselves asking the question, can I continue on? And if you find yourselves there, maybe today, maybe you found that sometime in the past, Acts 18 is an absolute gift to you and to me this morning. 
Because what we discover in this passage, there's a lot that could be said, but really I wanna focus just on a few verses here this morning. But what we find here this morning in Acts chapter 18 is though life can be full of discouragement, in God's great kindness, God gives his people just what they need so that they can continue on. We're looking at really the end of what is Paul's second missionary journey here at Acts 18. And as we look at this passage, as we consider his visit into the city of Corinth, we're gonna look at sort of three things together. First, we're gonna consider the pattern for gospel ministry. Secondly, we'll look at the problem of discouragement. And then finally, we'll consider together the power of Jesus. So first, the pattern for gospel ministry that we see here in the passage. Now, this is a familiar pattern. What we see happen as Paul enters into the city, it, this is going to sound very familiar. After preaching through the first 17 chapters of Acts, if you found yourself here thinking to yourself, my goodness, this guy sounds like a broken record, you're probably not alone and you're probably not without good cause. Because we, you, you've been noticing a pattern that has been repeated over and over and over again. There are slight variations in the narrative, slight different experience as Paul journeys along with his comrades advancing the gospel. But what we'll see is that there's a pattern that as he goes from one city to the next, it just keeps repeating itself. It's something like this. Paul and company make their way into a new area. They, they break ground into a new city. And as they get into the new city, they, they do what they always do. They begin to speak God's word. They are boldly proclaiming the word. And then as they boldly proclaim the word, this, this proclamation generates a, tip, a, a type of response from the audience. And oftentimes the response is sort of mixed reviews. There are some who, who, who give their lives to the Lord Jesus, who put their hope and trust in him. Salvation comes to them. But then there's others who resist and are opposed and who have a negative reaction to this faithful proclamation of God's word. There's always a response as they proclaim his word. And then following the response as the story goes on, what do they do? They pick up and they go to a new city. That's the, that's the pattern. And it just keeps repeating itself. And we see the pattern here in Acts 18. Paul leaves Athens and takes the gospel into a new city, that of Corinth. This is a new area that Paul hasn't been yet. And this particular area, just like all the other cities, is, is unique in its context. And therefore, there are sort of unique challenges, unique oppositions and resistance, unique experiences, a unique culture. We saw last week how, how Paul really thought through the, the uniqueness of Athens and, and used a particular strategy to, to sort of proclaim the gospel there. Corinth is different. It's unlike Athens. It's, it's different sort of in a variety of ways, but two come to mind right away. Athens, or sorry, Corinth is a city of influence. If Athens was sort of the intellectual capital of the Roman world back in the day, then, then it could be said that Corinth was sort of the, the commercial center of the world back in that day. Its geographic location made it an ideal place for trade from multiple directions. There were multiple seaports at this city located. It was located on a, cattle, a canal which connected it between the Aegean Sea and the Adriatic Sea. Adriatic sea. And so seafarers and maritime merchants were constantly traveling through this place. It was known for its pride, its arrogance, its clear. As you look at Paul's correspondence with them and his first and second letters to the church at Corinth, it was a proud city that was gloriously built, rebuilt by Julius Caesar himself. 
It was a city that was geographically positioned in such a way that it, it just naturally influenced the world around it. But it wasn't just a city full of influence. Corinth was also a city that was full of immorality. In Corinth was the temple of Aphrodite or the, the temple of Venus, the goddess of love. And because of this, a thousand female slaves would serve her by roaming the city streets at night as prostitutes. Sexual promiscuity was sort of just the air that people breathed in this city. And if, if you read First and Second Corinth, Corinthians, you can, you can see the impact that this had on the church as the, the culture of that community, Paul was constantly fighting to keep out of the church. It was a city that was full of influence, but it was also a city that was full of immorality. So that's the city. Paul goes into a city, goes into Corinth, and what does he do? Pattern repeats itself, he speaks boldly. Upon arrival, Paul follows his pattern. After getting a, a connected with Aquila and Priscilla, we find Paul in verse four, in the synagogue every Sabbath trying to persuade the Jews. This is typical for Paul. This is what we've seen him do over and over again. Silas and Timothy would join him in verse five, and the description of Paul when they find him is that he was occupied with the word. If you're somebody who writes in your Bible, that's a, that's a verse that's worth underlining or highlighting. What a wonderful description of this missionary, of Paul, this follower of Jesus. He was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that, that, Christ, that the Christ was Jesus. And then what's the response that we see in Acts 18? Is he boldly proclaims to the Jews and to the Gentiles alike in Corinth that Jesus is the Christ? What type of response does this generate? Well, it says in verse six that he was opposed and reviled by his audience, so much so that Paul says finally at some point, listen, I'm done with you. He shakes his garments. He says, I'm done. Your blood be on your own heads. I'll go to the Gentiles. I'll go to an audience that actually wants to hear what I have to say. See in verse 12 that the Jews made a united attack on Paul, essentially trying to press charges on him. Even though there was resistance, we're also told that, that many at the same time in, the, in, in Corinth heard Paul and they believed and were baptized. Titius and Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, there's at the same time, though there's resistance and opposition, the word is going out and people are hearing it and they're responding by faith to what Paul has to say. And then, as the pattern goes, what happens? Paul, in verse 18, sets sail for Syria. And then in verse 22, we find him back in Antioch. Paul just keeps moving along. The pattern we see is going over, it just keeps repeating itself over and over and over again. Why is it so important for us to notice this pattern? I mean, typically in the Bible, if you see something that keeps popping up over and over and over again, that's the type of thing you wanna take notice of. That's precisely the type of thing that you wanna observe and ask yourself, why does it keep happening like this? Why does he keep saying that? Well, I can think of two significant reasons why that pattern is so necessary for us to observe. First and foremost, it's reality. Acts is a book of history. This is our history as the church of Jesus Christ. This is the birth of a movement that would spread across the entire globe. This is history. It's, he's, he's writing this down, telling this to us because first, it actually happened. It's true. And the second reason, not just is it the reality of the story, 
But I think another reason is because it shows us that this is the priority of Jesus. The expansion of his kingdom by the spreading of his gospel. This is how it works. And really, this is sort of the, the meta narrative of the whole book itself. That the kingdom of God spreads when the people of God, empowered by the spirit of God, proclaim the word of God. This is how God's kingdom, if Acts is the telling of the story of how his kingdom expands, this pattern shows us how that happens. It's so important for us to notice, as we consider that, how it doesn't happen. The kingdom does not expand throughout the book of Acts by military force. The kingdom does not expand throughout the book of Acts by politically strategizing. The kingdom does not expand by sort of a civilian uprising and revolution. Now, certainly, as we, if you're familiar with how history sort of plays out, I mean, we're here some thousands and thousands of miles removed 2,000 years later from this movement following this same Jesus. And so what's, there's, there's a big history here, right? And if you're familiar with a little bit more of how the story plays out, we know that some 300 years of just faithful gospel proclamation, eventually the movement becomes so large in the Roman Empire that Constantine, the emperor himself, begins to see Christianity as a significant threat to the kingdom. And, and he makes what many believe to be sort of a, a wise political strategy in the face of a tremendously growing movement by declaring Christianity as the official religion of Rome. Now, it's important to remember that Acts is very unusual. The book of Acts is very unusual. Even in those first 300 years, it's very unusual in terms of how, on a couple of different levels. We don't have, after the book of Acts, much of a record of similar things happening like mass revivals and, and pulpits where preachers stand up and proclaim in thousands, like we saw early on, especially in the book of Acts, coming to Jesus. The kingdom grows so much over the course of 300 years, what happens in Acts is, is unusual in the sense that there's not a lot of historical record to show mass revivals. But what early church historians have shown is that the way that it increased over those 300 years was because men and women's lives were changed by the gospel of Jesus they brought their life under conformity of Jesus, meaning it shaped the way that they viewed the world around them. It changed the way that they loved their neighbor, the way that they cared for their sick or the elderly or the young or the unborn. It shaped and changed the way Christians lived their life. And then, not just did it change the way individuals lived their life and how they lived within a church and community and how the community cared for each other, but it also shaped how they spoke and, and Christians, the way that the gospel spread after the books of Acts was primarily Christians just being Christians in the world that God had placed them, loving God, loving their neighbor, and speaking the gospel to others. That's how it caught like wildfire and spread. This is the priority of Jesus. This is how he makes disciples, by bringing your life under the conformity of the word and then filling your mouth with his word so that you speak it to those around you. You live it out and you speak it out. That's the pattern. So we see Paul doing. That's what God ultimately has called us to do, to follow the exact same pattern. 
Now, secondly, as we consider the pattern in Acts 16, I want to point out that there's a problem as Paul seeks to do this. And that problem has a name. The name is discouragement. There is something, as Paul seeks to participate in this great adventure of expanding God's kingdom across the globe, there's something that poses as a threat to that journey, that mission, that adventure. And that problem is that of discouragement. Now, if you look at the text, you can think of a number of different reasons why Paul could potentially be discouraged. When he was in Athens, we saw that there was sort of just meager results. Nothing really to write home about. A couple of converts, praise God for those. But, all, but he was mocked, ridiculed while he was there. And that, that's nothing new for him. We saw in Philippi, after freeing a slave girl, after doing a phenomenally good thing. Their owners were so enraged that their hope of gain was lost that they seized him and Silas. They beat him. They put him in jail. Eventually, he's driven out of the city. Then he goes on to Thessalonica. Though they saw some converts among their Jewish audience, many others grew jealous of the attention that they were receiving, turned into a mob, and threw the whole city in an uproar. They faced threats and accusations. They eventually left, went on to Berea. That same mob that was formed in Thessalonica followed them to Berea. Again, chase them out of town. We find him here. You think of just in the text itself. Why could Paul be discouraged? As he reaches the port of Corinth, he, he reaches it and he is alone. He's faced opposition now. He's starting in a new city by himself. We're told that Silas and Timothy remain in Macedonia as they were needed there to teach the church, which had been, just been established it's the right thing to do. They're, they're there, and he's alone. In verse five, we see that they join him. We also learn that he's, he's a tent maker, so he meets Aquila and Priscilla, others that share the same trade, and so he has to sort of work for money. So this suggests that Paul is face, facing financial difficulties while he's there. We know that later a gift would come with Silas and Timothy, but initially he's alone. He's financially strapped. The response in Corinth as he does what God has called him to do is met with some opposition. He's sharing the gospel with these people. He's, he's beginning in the synagogues. This is strategic part of his strategy. And yet he's not initially welcomed. The, the very people who are his own people, the people who he has a tremendous love, the people who he wants to hear that Jesus is the Christ, they don't wanna hear what he has to say. He, he's rejected Yes, some believe and some are baptized, but others resist him and oppose him. These are his people. Can you imagine the, the source of discouragement? Maybe you don't have to imagine. Maybe you know exactly what it feels like to want somebody to hear the truth of Jesus and they want nothing to do with it. Somebody who you love and care for deeply and they are keeping you and the good news of Jesus at an arm's length. If you have somebody in your life like that, you know it can be awfully discouraging. And the more you love them and want to, them to hear and receive Jesus, the more discouraging it can be that they don't. Now, in Paul's own words himself, he says himself that when he came to them, listen to what he says in, first, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, describe sort of his state upon entering into this city. He says, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom, as I proclaim to you, 
the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. This is how Paul comes to the Corinthians. Weakness, with great fear. Probably as he looks at the city itself, thinking to himself, how in the world are these people going to receive the good news of the gospel? Full of themselves, so carnal. Paul was easily discouraged throughout his time, throughout his journeys. And I'm guessing that there is a lot of people in this room who can completely relate to him. The Christian life for all of us is a journey, not unlike the journey that we find Paul on. God has called us to participate in this, this great adventure of spreading his kingdom through the world by building our lives on and boldly proclaiming the word of God. And as we do that, as we bring our lives into conformity with his word and we fill our mouths with the, the good news of Jesus, the result may not always be as we want it to be. Things may not always go as we think they should. The responses are not always favorable to the message that we carry. And as a result, it can leave our relationships, maybe at work, maybe at home in our family, can leave them broken. There's all sorts of room and reasons for us to feel as a people discouraged. Maybe if you're a parent here and you're, you're thinking about your children, you know, you always, I know as a parent, I have sort of an idea of what my kids are gonna be like. And it's hard when my idea doesn't line up with reality. I mean, really in anything. But as a parent, there's a unique pain that comes with that. Maybe a sibling relationship, somebody in your family, and there's, there's relational strife, and you're thinking to yourself, it should be easier than this. Maybe it's a, it's a relational problem that you have with a parent. As you seek to live the life that God has called you to, and you love that individual, that parent, and you want them, like you, to embrace the truth of Jesus, but they keep you and that message at an arm's length, that is hard. Or maybe just there's just relational Challenge for any reason. People that you've invested in, poured your life out for, given yourself fully to, spent time with, and yet they want nothing to do with what you have to say. Maybe they only show up when they want something. There's some of us that are sitting here today that are full of discouragement and you find yourself right now, this morning, completely tuckered out. Wondering, perhaps like Paul may have been at this time, thinking to yourself, can I go on? Well, if that's you today, maybe it will be in a couple of weeks. Don't know what's in store. There's a couple of things you need to know. First thing is this. You are absolutely not alone. In your discouragement, you are not the only one 
who is discouraged. You know, Billy Graham is a man who many of us are aware of, just, you know, a man who's kind of known for integrity in his life, but then also the, the message that he spoke and proclaimed, and also the results that he had. I mean, he's a man who led, I mean, I don't even know how to quantify how many people he led to the Lord, responsible for many, many folks hearing the gospel and responding to it. Tons of fruit in his life and ministry, influence that we still feel in our day today. He also said that the Christian life, and this is an important thing for us to remember, because I think there's a lie out there that says something different than this. He says that the Christian life is not a constant high. The Christian life is not. Don't think to yourself once you, that once you put your faith and trust in Jesus, once you invite him into your life and join him in the journey, that things will just be smooth sailing. He says the Christian life is not a constant high. And I think that there's, there's so many people out there that want you to believe that it's supposed to be and that if things aren't going your way, there's, there's something wrong with you. You're, you're doing something wrong. Now, could you be? Yes. Could your own sin be bringing about a source of discouragement and pain that's unnecessary in your life? Yes, it could be, all right? But at the same time, if you just have blood running through your veins and breath in your lungs then you are gonna know what it is to be discouraged. Because life, the Christian life, is not a constant high. He says himself, I have moments of deep discouragement. And I have to go to God in prayer with tears in my eyes and either say, oh God, forgive me, or oh God, help me. And those two phrases are phrases that should be constantly coming out of our mouth to God in prayer. Because we are a broken, sinful people. And we live in a broken and sinful world. And as long as those two things exist, we will be discouraged at times and we'll be in need of help. But the second thing you need to know is not just you're not alone, this is, it's normal. Christian life is not a constant high. The second thing you need to know is that God actually cares about your discouragement. You are, if you have discouragement that has entered into your life due to pain, loss, grief, um, rejection, relational strife, you are precisely the type of person that God gravitates towards in a unique way, in a special way. He draws himself near and he makes himself available and offers you precisely the encouragement that you need. Third point, the power of Jesus. How can Paul be encouraged? Well, we looked a little bit about how he could be discouraged. But in this passage, you can also see a number of ways that God's grace and his kindness is sort of peppered throughout Acts chapter 18. How is God coming to Paul to encourage him? Well, since Silas and Timothy join him in verse five, I would imagine after a season of being alone, being rejected, being financially strapped, having two good friends show up is probably a welcome change. God's gifts. When they come, Paul indicates later in his letter in the Corinthians that they brought him a financial gift from the churches at Philippi. That's pretty sweet, 
right? By financial generosity. I'm sure that probably lifts his soul just a little bit. Also, we see that there is some success in ministry. I love the fact that when you look at his journeys, he's, he's, he's quick to point out the names, the people who are responding, even if there's one or two, like we saw last week in Athens. Those names matter. There, there is some success here. Yes, he, he shakes the dust from his feet, from his garments of the, the synagogues, but Paul sees Crispus and the household believe in the Lord. Later, there's charges leveled against him in Gallio, a Roman proconsul, intervenes and, and won't give the mob the time of day, spares Paul probably a serious beating and maybe sends it Sosthenes' way, it sounds like, which in some ways you could see as a form of encouragement as well. Here's another individual who's ready to suffer for Jesus. But the main source of encouragement that we see in this chapter is in these two verses, which are awesome verses. And if you, again, if you're a highlighter, if you're an underliner, these are the, this is the main point of the passage. Underline it, highlight it, remember these words. Because Paul, in a moment, along a journey full of discouragement, the Lord Jesus himself appears to Paul in a vision. And he speaks. He offers encouragement through his word. He offers a word to Paul's weary heart. Look at verse nine, it says this. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Now, if you look at this word that he offers as a, as a form of encouragement to Paul, you can kind of break it down into a couple of different sections. He offers him first a command. He offers him first a command. Do not be afraid. Negative, don't be afraid. But positive, go on speaking and do not be silent. This is what you be sure of it. As we consider the pattern before, this is precisely what Paul has been doing. The Lord speaks to him, you are on the right track. Keep on keeping on. Continue to speak. Don't be afraid. Yes, you've seen mixed results. Yes, you've been opposed and there's been resistance and discouragement along the way. But don't be afraid. Keep going. This is my will for your life. I, I've told you about it before and I'm reminding you of it again. This is what you're supposed to do. Speak God's word. Stay focused on my word and my will for your life. Continue to be occupied with the word, Paul. That's his command. Then he gives them a series of promises. This is what I want you to do. I'm going to assure you of it's going to be hard, but let me give you some assurance. Look at the promises. For I am with you. No one is going to harm you. I have many people in this city. Essentially, Paul, go speak the word. My presence is with you. I will protect you. And your work is not done. That's essentially what God is telling Paul. What a formula. What a great formula, and we would do well as God's people who can often be weary and tuckered out to remember as well. What has God commanded us to? 
Oftentimes, when we get discouraged, we can easily lose sight of what God's called us to. I can be guilty of that just as anybody else here is. Things start to get hard and you think to yourself, well, maybe if I just tone it down a little bit, right? Maybe if I just don't, you know, be so bold as to speak Jesus. Maybe if I just use my deeds and I don't copy it with any words, you know, maybe that will just be the way this God uses this. Maybe that's what I'm supposed to do. And discouragement can creep in and, and things aren't going according to a plan. So we begin to basically adjust our plan. And what, what God is, what Jesus is telling Paul is don't even think about it. Remember what I have called you to. Remember, there is a way that I have designed this thing to go. Don't abandon my will for yours. And we would do well to follow this advice. When we find discouragement creep into our life and we begin to think, well, maybe if I just, maybe if I just don't take God's word so seriously, maybe that will make it easier for this relationship. Maybe if I just minimize my hopes for this person or my dreams for this person, maybe that will make it easier. Jesus comes to Paul and says, don't even think about it. I've told you precisely what I want from you, and that's the plan, and I'm sticking to it. But then secondly, we have to remember moments of discouragement, what do we do? Two-step process. The first thing is remember the commands of Christ. Do not drift from his word and what he's commanded to you. He's not changing his strategy to minimize pain in our life. And we shouldn't be tempted to do the same thing. The second thing we have to do is claim his promises. Remember his commands in a season of discouragement and claim his promises. There are so many promises in the Bible, one after another throughout Scripture that can provide the needed comfort and assurance that our weary hearts need. And if we're people who want to continue to keep on, we have to know what those promises are so that his word can soothe our weary heart as well. We have to. We have to claim his promises he says to Paul specifically, I am with you. It's so interesting. If you were to examine Paul's life and see he has multiple experiences like this where he has visions or he, he hears the Lord speak. And oftentimes the message is the exact same thing. I know you're afraid, but I am with you. I assure you my presence is with you. And it's amazing because when Paul is on his deathbed in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 17, and he's totally abandoned, totally alone, it looks like things are not gonna end well. Do you know what he says? He says, but the Lord stood by me and he strengthened me. Paul doesn't need to hear or see the vision anymore because he knows it's true. And that's the reason he was able to persevere because he understood that it wasn't him who was doing the work. It wasn't him who was pushing on forward, but it was the exalted Jesus who was right next to him, holding him, comforting him, soothing him, assuring him of his presence. If you're a follower of Jesus, 
and you are in the thick of it, you can be assured that Jesus is with you and he will strengthen you. Matthew 28, this is some of Jesus' last words to his disciples. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's your mission. This is your command. And behold, here comes the promise. I'm with you always to the end of the age. This is Jesus' assurance to us doesn't assure us that the job he has assigned us to is going to be easy. Raising kids to become followers of Jesus, it's not gonna be easy. Speaking boldly in a university setting, maybe with people who are, have intellectual challenges to Jesus, it's not going to be easy. In a world that you know, wants nothing to do with what they view a message of Jesus and the Bible as intolerance of others. It's not going to be easy. But I will be with you to the end of the age. What an awesome promise. But the second promise, the other promise is, I have many in this city. I'm with you. I will protect you. My presence is here. I will preserve you. Nothing will, you won't be hurt here. You won't be harmed. For I have many in this city. The second promise is this, as long as we are here on this earth, his work won't be finished. As long as you call Iowa City your, take up residence in this community, guess what? There will be people that need to hear what Jesus has to say. There are people in our community, his work isn't finished. He has many in the city. Paul, I need you here. I've got you here. Your work isn't finished. As long as the Lord has you in that relationship, stay true to what he's commanded you to, no matter how hard it is. And his work isn't finished. Many in this city. Folks, he's, he's called us to, not unlike Paul, a really wonderful adventure, but it can be full of discouragement. And if we want to have any hope, being faithful to our Lord and Savior, we must remember his commands and claim his promises, I'm telling you, on a daily basis. Or we will forget what he's called us to and we'll forget that he's with us. And discouragement will overtake us. That's guaranteed. At the very beginning, I mentioned the relationship between Samwise Gamgee and Frodo. Now, I think if, when I first watched the movie, if you were to ask me, who's the hero of this story? I would have said Frodo. But after watching it numerous times, I'm declaring to you this morning, I've officially changed my mind. I don't think Frodo was the hero of the story. I think, in fact, it was Sam. There's a distinction between a protagonist and a hero in this particular story. It's not unlike other 
classical literature that, that draw a distinction between the two, a protagonist and a hero. Yes, Frodo is clearly the protagonist. He's the one, he's the leading character who's sort of driving the action of the story forward. But the hero is the character in the story sort of whose side we are on. He's the one who the story is technically about. And I'm convinced that's Sam. The story begins at the same time that Sam's introduced, sort of the journey is, there's some scenes before it, but the journey, the mission is assigned at the exact same time that Sam enters into the story. If you follow the movie, the story ends with Sam being the one who's returned to the Shire and words coming out of his mouth, so he has the last say. He's put forward in the story as sort of the true representative of the Shire, the one who wants to get back to the green grass, rolling hills, the family and kids. Simple life, the simple way. And along the way, throughout the journey, it's Sam who keeps Frodo going. He's a constant source of encouragement. He keeps him moving forward and focused on the mission. And at the very end of the movie, now, it's a spoiler, but y'all, you've had 20 years. It's not on me, it's on you, if you haven't seen it, all right? I'm gonna give it away right now. That's your fault, not mine, though. 20 years, people. Well, it's been out there longer than that. At the very end, it's Frodo who collapses, who's unable to ascend the mountain. And it's Sam who has to literally pick him up and carry him to the top so that he can properly dispose of the ring. Folks, apart from Sam, this mission is not accomplished. And we are fools if we think that we are the hero of this story as well. See, the truth is what Jesus is gently reminding Paul is listen, I'm the hero of the story. I'm the one who's going to get the work done. I've invited you to participate with me in this grand adventure. And it's an invitation you can't refuse. When we link arms with Jesus, his presence never leaves us. And he offers you this morning the opportunity to be a part of his story, him as the hero. Oftentimes we can think of ourselves as just sort of a, you know, just an instrument that he just uses. Don't think of it like that. He wants to bless us and to bless you, to shine his face upon you. And one of the main ways he does that, he says, come and join me in what I'm doing. And he offers us the encouragement our hearts need. I'm gonna invite the band to come up and I'm gonna close us in prayer. Father God, Lord, um, we come to you this morning and we are so thankful, just knowing our own limitations, just our own fragility, Lord, we are so thankful um, that we don't have to depend on ourselves. Lord, but that you freely give yourself to us as a constant source of encouragement. And it is a source that we need to tap into on a regular basis. And that doesn't make us unusual. It makes us normal. 
Lord, and I just pray that you would help us to be a church that is constantly reminded ourselves and each other as we disciple one another of what your commands are, what you have called us to, Lord, that we never lose sight of the mission and the purpose And that when it's hard, when it's difficult, Lord, that we would look to your promise, the promise that you give us, that you are with us, that we should not fear, that we should not be dismayed because you will hold us, you will strengthen us, you will hold on to us, Lord. What a phenomenal promise. I pray that that would bring the encouragement that we desperately need. Lord, we thank you that we are not just a means to an end to you, but you offer yourself freely to us. You love us, Lord. We thank you for that. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus.